welcome back to Stat Chat, dishing it with D. Klatz. This is Dave Klatsky of Colgate University Men's Basketball. Today's guest, Cody Topper, we go way back, played against him in college when he was at Cornell for, I believe, three years. And when he finished his career, his playing career, probably in 2010 or 11, uh, we reconnected and realized that we both were obsessed with basketball statistics and and uh, kind of had similar backgrounds. So uh, I was thrilled to get him on the show. Uh, another NBA guy, and you know, as we keep talking to these NBA guys and digging a little deeper, we are now fully seeing the scope of of the what the NBA can do and the resources they have to to get the numbers and the stats that they have available. And it's great because while we may not have access to the same professional services that they do, we can use their data and, and help our, our own teams at this level. So Cody actually wrote a paper on pick and roll defense, and that's kind of what we spend the majority of our time in this, in this uh, show talking about. We don't even get to all of it. I had about five to six more questions I wanted to ask him, but I think it was all good. I, I tried to get the most important things across and uh, you know, had to, had to bring up the NBA Finals while we're right here in the midst of it. So um, hope you enjoy it. I had a lot of fun doing this one. I always learn a lot when I talk to these NBA guys. Cody was no different. So I uh, hope you enjoy it as well. Let's rock. We are back at it today with Cody Topper. We are in the middle of the NBA Finals. I thought it would be a good idea to get somebody from the NBA. Uh, Cody is currently employed by the Houston Rockets. He played professionally for about seven years before he got into coaching. He is a graduate of Cornell University where he was, where he played for the same guy that recruited me in the legendary Steve Donahue. Uh, so, Cody, welcome to the show. Can you just start us off by just kind of explaining your role within the Rockets? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, uh, the legendary Steve Donahue, you mentioned he, he moved to Cornell, and I followed him over there. Um, you know, so I, obviously I'd like to think that, that we were rivals with you guys, but we were never quite on your level during my time. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, no, now I'm with the Houston Rockets organization. Um, I'm an assistant coach for our NBA Development League team, um, the Rio Grande Valley Vipers. And, uh, you know, it's been a it's been a great, great ride the last two seasons. Uh, this past season we won the Western Conference Championship. Lost in the D-League Finals to uh, in the deciding uh, game three to Jerry Stackhouse's Raptors 905 uh, organization. But, uh, but all in all, it's been a great experience. I love the Rockets organization. I love our philosophies. And, you know, everything we're about. Great, great. Well, thanks for thanks for being on the show here. Um, can you just explain to me and, and the rest of the listeners just a, a little bit about how the NBA stats are acquired? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously you've got your traditional box scores, and then you've got your expanded box scores, things like effective field goal percentage, and then you can from there calculate rebounding percentages, uh, and onward and onward, but uh, Sport VU, Sport View, as a lot of people refer to it as, is uh, a technology that is now in every single NBA arena. And what they're doing is they're gathering data. And what the data is showing us here is essentially movement of the basketball, movement of the players. 
and you can really see the game as a bunch of data points literally flowing back and forth on a court overlay. And this data is giving us XY data. It's giving us uh, – or XY information. It's giving us, uh, you know, further in-depth information in regards to, you know, passing sequences, pick-and-roll coverages, offensive efficiencies. Uh, you can see how many passes have been made in, in a specific game or what the average amount of passes a team makes in a win versus a loss. Um, you know, and there's all kinds of interesting things you can do. Uh, the raw data is there, and now there's different sub-companies that are coming along, and they're kind of cultivating this data and trying to make sense of it uh, and trying to figure out, hey, you know, what what can we see with this data, both offensively and defensively, and how can that provide a team or an organization with a competitive advantage to either win games or make uh, accurate player assessments and evaluations, you know, for things like free agency, et cetera, et cetera, as, you know, organizations look to ultimately, uh, you know, get to compete for a championship. So so some of these sub-companies, and I think one of the big ones, if I'm not mistaken, is a company called Second Spectrum. Um, now, do they disseminate this data to everyone in the league, or is it one of those things where your staff may say, hey, look, guys, we, we want to – we care about um, how many times somebody drives middle uh, throughout the season, and can you do a private – project for us or is it where they're just they come up with their own ideas and their own uh things and then disseminate it to every every, all 32 teams in the league well you know i watched a a tech talk uh you know from their ceo and co-founder and uh you know really what second spectrum has put together is a platform and you know then from there they license out their platform to various nba organizations you know those who want to partake in those who you know, don't obviously, uh, you know, elect not to. Um, but Second Spectrum is unique in that, you know, they wanted to understand the inner workings of the game. And what that means is they're not just, you know, taking uh, statistics, statistical evaluation as a way of understanding efficiency. Uh, what they wanted to do was understand things like pick and roll coverage or things like commonly run NBA actions and use an understanding of what those, what that X and Y data would look like. If you can imagine, you know, a fast draw diagram and the ones and two, three, four, five all moving and the next one, X, two, three, four, five, et cetera, just all moving. And what they've done is they've been able to understand now their, their algorithms and their platform can interpret a formation and a movement of the ball as an actual action. And so now what you can do is you can get statistical information based on that particular action. It really looks like an intricate dance of a bunch of little dots moving around. And, oh, hey, what is that? That's a side pick and roll. Okay. And now that we know what that intricate kind of dance of dots looks like in terms of side pick and roll, well, now we can take a look at all of our side pick and rolls, both sides of the floor, uh, in all of our games, wins versus losses. And now we can actually, you know, look at that across the entire league. And what's, what's great about their platform is, you know, and I, and even their CEO mentioned, hey, you know, if you sit down and watch the game with the coach, they've got a finely, you know, a fine eye and they can pick out the details and they can do this and they can do that. And, you know, nothing's going to replace the coach, but a coach can only watch one game and second spectrum's algorithm accompanied by sport view data can essentially watch and break down every game at the same time. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. That uh, 
that's a, a lot of uh, good data to to pick from. And uh, I guess we can start. You mentioned it, um, the pick and roll coverage. So I, I know uh, you. <laughs> well, as we talked about, I, I consider you now a pick and roll coverage expert. So if you could, <laughs> could you talk us through a little bit about what you've learned um, from some of this data and, uh, you know, how your ideas kind of came to be? Yeah, I mean, obviously, just in general, bat- basketball teams, players, coaches, all levels, pick and roll, we know it's it's the dominating force in the game both offensively and defensively, meaning if you can figure out how to stop it, you're going to give yourself a chance to, to win. If you can figure out how to take advantage of uh, the defense on the offensive side of the ball, you're going to do the same thing. So, um, you know, my official role with our team is the offensive coordinator. But, you know, through that, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, as assistant coaches at, at uh, whatever level, you know, you're doing scouting reports. And when your scout's up and the team takes the floor and, you know, you're all hyped up, man, I know what plays they're running and all that type of good stuff. And then, you know, you're you're still, you know, getting diced up, if you will. I mean, because great offense most often beats great defense. Um, it's hard to take away everything. But when that happens, you, you sit back and you say, hey, well, hold up, we need to take we need to take a look. Like, what are we doing on this particular type of screen? What is successful? What isn't successful for us? But with this data that we can get from Second Spectrum now, you can really take a, a further in-depth look and say, what works league-wide? And now – once we figure out what works league-wide in the different locations on the floor, we can take it a step further and we can figure out, well, why do these coverages work league-wide or, or for these particular teams? And, you know, it, it goes beyond saying, hey, we're going to, you know, ice or blue, you know, side pick-and-rolls and step-up pick-and-rolls. But now you look at it and you say, hey, well, the top three NBA teams in the league – in regards to their efficiency on the side of the floor guarding pick and rolls or icing uh, or bluing those screens. But what about the fact that teams 15 and team 25 in the rankings is also doing the same thing? So now what separates the elite teams from the average teams, right? Because it goes beyond just identifying what the appropriate coverage is. Now we've got to identify, you know, what, what specifically they're doing uh, that works. And, you know, so what I did, uh, you know, I, I wanted to take a look. I wanted to break it down uh, first off by the different coverages. I wanted to break it down uh, secondly, you know, by by locations, and then thirdly, you know, get an understanding of what the offense is going to do and how we can combat what their solutions are uh, on that side of the ball. And so, you know, I wanted to take a look first in the middle of the floor and figure out, you know, who's great at pick and roll coverage in the middle of the floor, and so. You know, I, I ran some filters through the second spectrum software, minimum 1,000 picks defended, and found that the best teams in the middle pick and roll were the Los Angeles Clippers, Cleveland Cavaliers, Memphis, Detroit, New Orleans. And, and I should also say that I took out screens, uh, ball screens that were guard to guard, because those are, you know, commonly switchable actions. So I wanted to kind of remove the switch from the equation because, you know, I, uh, I believe, as uh, Steve Kerr said uh, at some point, I want to say there was a quote him saying, man, a, a team that can switch everything, you know, you're going to give yourselves a chance to win win championships. But, uh, you know, we wanted to look at and figure out then, okay, well, these are the best teams in the middle. What are they doing? Um, okay, so you're, so there, so you're looking yeah, yeah, at so – you're, you're taking away the switch, which some teams 
will do to, to, to even if it is a mismatch. But you're saying forget about those. The coverages that I want to deal with are um, basically icing, flat hedging, blasting, trapping a little bit maybe, and dropping. Is that are those like the yeah. main ones? That yeah, so, about? so exactly. And, and kind of to, to more to, to clarify that, you know, a lot of teams, you're going to say we're going to switch one, one through three, right? And it, you'll see in the NBA today, you'll see a, you know, a one on two ball screen to get a switch to take advantage of an isolation situation. Um, you know, and more or less the, the non switchables or the rarely switchables are going to be screens involving the five man, but those are also, some, some of the main scoring screens that you see. You know, what screen is going to create the biggest advantage offensively typically, you know, is going to be one set with the five, right? So now you're going to force okay. two guys to guard one, right? And yep. there's a lot of different there's a lot of different terms, right, for the different for the different coverages. And 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 depending on, you know, your philosophies, I mean, you know, you take like bluing a side pick and roll. Like one team might call it blue, one might call it push. One might call it ice and somebody else might call it channeling. Um, and so, you know, the ones that I separated by specifically were bluing, all right, obviously, which is sitting away from the screen, weaking the pick and roll, which is typically in the middle, sitting it towards the defender's uh, weak hand catch, which to, for, for this purposes will be defined as being at the level of the screen drop, which is below the level of the screen blitz, doubling the pick and roll, showing is where the, the, um, the, the defender of the screener is going to be above the level. Jam is where the, the defender of the screener is going to be even with his man, and the uh, offensive player is going to pass under two. And then, you know, there's a switch. There can be a switch within each of those coverages, but the ones that we're going to look at are going to be called veerbacks, which is going to be like a late emergency switch, not switch as a base coverage. So when I looked at those numbers and I ran them, um, we found the top five five teams and then from those top five teams I reran all the aggregates as far as efficiency in the different coverages and what I found was that the best teams in the middle were also the best teams uh, typically in drop coverage being below the level of the screen and that's again with a minimum of a thousand picks guarded so from there I think I even took it a little bit further and wanted to figure out okay so now from a personnel standpoint who's involved in these screens and who's good at defending them. So, again, staying in the middle with a minimum of 150 picks guarded between a tandem, I re-ran the numbers. And so what that showed me is, you know, the top five or six tandems at guarding the middle pick and roll, regardless of what the coverage is. And not so coincidentally, when you rerun those numbers, again, for a subset of coverages, you find that the best in drop coverage uh, tandem-wise, essentially line up with the best teams. So, you know, and, and you can almost deduct that from, from the numbers uh, anyway, but the best drop And, and who, were, who were, like, who were some of these, uh, uh, like, some of the best, I mean, I'm sure we could probably guess based on, yeah. you know, knowing basketball, but, you know, this, that's what stats are for to kind of confirm your, your eye test and well, who were – what's an example of, you know, a couple of tandems that did pretty well this year? Tony Allen uh, and Marcus Soule are, uh, are very elite at guarding the, the middle pick and roll. Uh, Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan, John Wall, Marcin Gortat, Kyrie Irving, Tristan Thompson. Uh, those guys 
uh, I mean, they're, they're the best of the best. And, and when I say best of the best, I mean in terms of points per direct pick. And so that's kind of, that was my marker and what I was looking at. So whenever you're involved in a screen, a direct pick means that the action that transpires because of the pick is going to result in either the ball handler shooting or the ball handler passing to somebody who's going to take a shot within one dribble, right? So there are other picks as well, and we can separate that by points per chance. And I'm probably going to dig a little deeper and kind of look more at that because you might guard a pick and roll very well and just negate the advantage altogether and they have to go to another action. And um, and looking at that's a little bit different, right? So points per direct pick, those guys were the best. Um, we know Marcus Sol, Tony Allen. I mean, they're they're two elite defenders, right? But if you look at Marcus Sol and you, and you just put him out there, you, you, I mean, he's he's not exactly a, a sight for uh, you know for sore eyes, is, is, as you might say, right? He's slow. <laughs> he's not particularly fast. I mean, he's tall. He's long, but he's got great instincts and he's got great technique. And to me, that's what separates him. Yeah, that was going to be well, – well, first of all, I got I got two questions about that, so let's start with the first one. I, I I would maybe argue that points per chance is is maybe more important than, than points per direct pick because if you can get to the next thing, especially with a 24-second shot clock, isn't that really valuable or um, – It's extremely am I, valuable. Am I misreading that? But, so that no, no, you're that's not, pretty you're, good, you're not right? misreading it at all. It's very good, right? So – and I – and – more interestingly, right, so you look at 152 picks defended in the middle between Tony Allen and Marcus Sowell, and that was 0.76 points per direct pick, and then it was also 0.78 points per chance, right? So the numbers for them match up very closely, and altogether, right, including every pick that they guard, it's 0.2, excuse me, 0.92 points per possession. Uh, and if we say that one point per possession is like something that an average offense is going to produce, Right, point nine two is very good. Um, that's yeah. elite. So now, the, the data. You, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, yeah, I was just going to say that that the teams and and I and I looked at um I, I filtered everything by both points per chance and then points per direct pick, and uh, decided to further analyze the direct pick aspect of it solely based on you know how are we guarding in a scoring action within that subset, you know what I mean, to see okay. how you finish off a possession. But I wholeheartedly agree with you because if you're great in your pick-and-roll coverages, I mean, ideally, we're going to negate the advantage on one side early in the shot clock, force them into a secondary action for great again on the second side. By the time they get to the third side, you know, they're going to have to go isolation play, and, and, and hopefully that reduces the chance of them getting a good shot. So I agree 100% with what you're saying. Okay, so my next – question is all about Marcus All. So obviously, you know, you talk about a guy like Kevin Garnett and DeAndre Jordan who are freakishly long, freakishly athletic, tough to replicate, right? But yes. Marcus Sol, one of the best defenders in the league, is big, but you would never put him on the athleticism scale as those two guys I mentioned, or even a lot of the guys in the league. So have you like the, at the end of the day, we're all trying. You know, the stats say one thing, but we're but the big answer is, or the big question is why. Have you actually watched his pick and rolls? To you know, you talked about technique. W- what exactly with his technique does he do that we may be able to steal for our guys that aren't Kevin Garnett and DeAndre Jordan? Exactly. Well, 
you know, I watched uh, every single of the 152 picks that him and Tony Allen guarded guarded together. <laughs> yeah, as well as uh, I'd say hundreds more. But um, to me, what what stood out, um, and some of these things are stuff that we talk about in our shell drills at all levels. But um, one is being prepared early, right? Understanding before the action happens, right? So Marcus Sol is typically in his position at the point of the screen. That doesn't mean he's at the level of the screen because we're talking drop coverage, but what that means is he's on the appropriate side of the screen, he's communicated the screen, and he's in a low stance, you know, prepared for whatever happens next. You know, whether that's uh, an elite athlete, and obviously at his level he is defending the elite of the elite in terms of playmakers, point guards in those situations. Tony Allen is typically on the other team's most electric playmaker, and so these are not easy guys to corral for a big slow dude out of Spain, right? So right. from his perspective, being low and ready gives him an initial advantage. And then from there, technique-wise, right, arm activity is imperative. Being long, right, with every bit of length you have to cloud vision of the ball handler is imperative. And the the rules kind of that I've come to see as being the best way to defend it are if the offensive player drags you out east-west more than two to three dribbles max, then the on-ball defender needs to get back to a squared position. That means, and Marcus Hall does a great job of this, Mark realizes, hey, okay, he's dribbling east-west. He's not coming at me towards the basket right now. Well, I'm not going to draw into the bait. I'm not going to go all the way out there and chase him out there. I'm going to let sure. Tony get back in front of him and I'm going to make sure I find the role man. Two things that are incredibly important in the pick-and-roll coverage, especially when you're guarding so much space in the middle of the floor, is never letting the roll man, right, or the ball get behind you. If the roll man gets behind you, you can't see him, you lose vision, right? Then you've got to hope that your high hand's clouded enough for you to get back in the play should they make a pass. But as you go down, we want to retreat with the ball, right? So you're almost in a cat-and-mouse game, um, that you would see in a typical two-on-one because that's really what it is. It's a it's a controlled two-on-one, hopefully with a, with a, with a second player coming back into the uh, to the equation. Right, right, okay. Yeah, I mean, it, he's really something to watch, and I think uh, as we all try and teach pick-and-roll defense, you, he's just so efficient with it. Like, you can't make mistakes, and he's it's it seems like he's just always ready – to do the right thing and, and doesn't get caught a lot and it shows up in the numbers. So, um, another thing, so, that I'll, I'll, another thing, another thing I'll point out too is, right. If you're guarding a smaller player and you're a bigger player and you go towards that smaller player in any sort of fashion, you're going to be susceptible to a blow by on either side, right? It's just, just common knowledge, right? Yeah. So yep. for him, the retreatable aspect of it, right. With high hands, Almost, one, it buys time, and two, it forces a certain degree of indecision with the ball handler. And the hope is, right, we, we're talking analytics, is that we, we want to force a guy to, to shoot a, a non-paint two shot. We want to force him to, to shoot a shot that's inside the three-point line off the dribble, but that's outside of the paint, outside of the restricted, right? Because as far as an expected value per shot, that's going to be our best chance for getting a stop. Right, so probably a 0.788% uh, expected value shot right there on that particular shot. 
which is so so bar- so it's just to just to clarify because uh, this is something that I think is really important. So you're saying off in the NBA in off the dribble non paint non three shot has an expected value of would you say was point eight eight about point seven eight eight. Oh, point seven eight eight. Okay, so 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 that's we're pretty so low. Essentially, yeah, okay. The league average, the league average shooting percentage in that situation is below forty percent. It's about thirty nine percent, right? And then obviously, if we knock that down. Points. Yeah, it's worth two points, right? So if you look at the league average shooting percentage beyond the three point line, it's a thirty five percent shot. Okay, but the expected value of the shot is goes up because of the fact you're rewarded with that extra point. So the expected value from a shot attempt at the three-point line is going to be 1.05 points per shot as opposed to 0.788. Now, not to, in, not to tangent off the, the pick-and-roll stuff. We'll come right back to that because um, I, I love this stuff. But the, the 0.78 expected value, how does being wide open compare to what – Sports VU would call being challenged affect that number. Yeah, so even 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 further looking, and, and you know, I haven't run the exact values on on just that traditionally, right? We assume that an open one is probably going to have a higher value, a contested one is going to have a lower value. Just common knowledge, right? The harder, right. The, the closer the defender is, the harder the shot's going to be, right? So let's just say for argument's sake, and I haven't run the numbers, we know that incorporating both open and non-open shots, right, we're looking at 39.4% as the league-wide shooting percentage, right? We can assume that that's probably going to be around 37 to 38% on the high side if it's contested. Okay. I'd say, I'd okay. say that's a pretty – I would say that's a pretty generous assessment, only subtracting one – to two percentage points. Would you agree that that's fair? Yeah, I, I would actually probably guess it's even lower. Um, exactly. Read, no, exactly. And, yeah. and I would agree with that. I mean, I would say you might go as low as 32 to 33% realistically. Yeah. I, I, I don't – I remember reading an article a couple of years back, I think it was by the Nylon Calculus people, um, that your percentage drops about 9 to 10% by, by taking a dribble. <laughs> so – um, that's something I've always gone back to. Oh, oh as you, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I actually so, have that data. So, let me uh, let me try to find that. I have uh, I can tell you the effective field goal percentages on the different areas of the floor, uh, off the catch versus off the dribble, right? Yeah. And uh, per exactly what you are saying, right here, um, those numbers are going to be decreased uh, every. Sec in every segment of the floor. Here, I'm pulling it up right now. All right. So, effective field goal percentage based on shot location, and uh, this is compared off the dribble versus catch and shoot. So, uh, catch and shoot, right? Un- and, and this is inc- including uh, contested and non-contested, I believe, right? So now the contest is another factor. Off the dribble, forty. 0.4% middle of the floor region, right, in uh, inside the three-point line before the free-throw line. Well, off the catch-and-shoot, it's 42.9. So you're looking at a, a 3% uh, 
three percentage point difference right there, and this is the effective field goal percentage, right? And uh, so then you look at uh, the, the difference at two point five. Now, if you go out, to yeah, an that's, that's not that bad. Yeah, so you, no, yeah, that's not that yeah. bad. But then, but then if yeah. you go out to the to either side of the floor, you're going to see a reduction from five uh, by five point two percent, typically on the left side, four point seven on the right side, right? So it's a thirty eight percent shot on the left side off the dribble. It's a forty three point three percent shot on the left side off catch and shoot, right? So that's right. A, that's a pretty solid difference, you know, five that percentage is. points. Now you yeah. go you go out to you go out to the three point line. You know, and it completely changes. So, and and this is this is based on all NBA shots, I believe, from the 2015 season. Um, in the middle region of the floor, above the break, three point shot, um, right in the middle, 47.5 effective field goal percentage uh, off the bounce, and 54.2 effective field goal percentage off the catch. And then, I mean, if you go to the corners, it's like scorching, right? So, 46.4 off the dribble. Effective field goal percentage and fifty nine point three. Wow! Uh, you know a difference of wow. that's a difference of twelve point nine. Right. So look at those those differences. So typically, if we're just going around the regions here at the three point line in the corners, you got a twelve point nine percent difference in one of the in one of the regions. I mean, it's, it's incredible to think about, right? So yeah, you know your chances so of making trying, a shot yeah. go down. So yeah, so I, back to. Um, the middle pick and roll, I guess we, I, I don't really remember exactly where we were at, but I, I'll, I'll take it um, to the side. Uh, just explaining real quick. So in your studies for middle pick and roll coverage in the NBA, you found that the most successful teams uh, employ the drop, meaning one step off the, the, the level, or is that more than like how, how much are they dropping? In, in what you so, studied. Yeah, and what I've seen in the general rule of thumb kind of that I just am coining from from not only looking at the data but watching the film is anywhere from one to three steps below the level of the screen seems to be accurate. You, anything going beyond that, and there's always a situation that you might end up in that type of a scenario, but anything below that tends to be a little bit too low, right? So, you know, we talk about, a contested shot versus an uncontested shot in the different percentage as well. We already know that your chances of making it go down when you dribble, well, your chances of making it go even further down if the hand's up, right? Well, yeah. if you're too far off the guy, you you know, it might end up being a wash because you might end up giving up a, a really open shot to, you know, guys who are elite, elite at what they do. Um, and part of the reason why you, you want to be in that coverage and the, re, the, the, uh, the retreat is so important is because if you're retreating – you know, and you're seeing your, the roll man and the ball, and you're trying to keep them both in front of you, ultimately everybody's going towards the basket. So everything's funneling back towards one point as it started in one point. And the closer you get to that, to the cylinder, obviously, you know, the shorter the recovery is going to be. So now your length, you know, can bother your opponent. Say a pocket pass is made, a late one, or a lob pass is made, you have a better opportunity to then take one or two steps recover to the role man and force the offensive player to for, uh, to finish through legal contact, which is incredibly hard to do if somebody's really practiced their verticality well. Sure, sure. Um, just jumping to the offensive side real quick, um, because you're see, we're seeing it more and more, and especially with the Rockets, the middle pick and roll, basically putting the other three players – around the three-point line 
is that something that, I mean, the Rockets do it probably more than anybody. I'm, I'm going to call it like kind of like a flat screen, uh, even though it can be a middle swivel or, or any type of middle ball screen. Is that something that's talked about with the Rockets in really, or is that just the NBA has changed? But in college, you still see it a lot where there's always a big, like, it's very rarely one ball handler, three guys around the perimeter and one screener. But in the NBA, you see it all the time. Is that something that the Rockets have really focused on? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, but beyond that, right, let's just look at Mike D'Antoni when he was with the Phoenix Suns. Um, you know, he coined the term pace and space and, you know, was really kind of formulating his offense around what the analytical data would say even before a time when analytics was, uh, you know, as, as popular. And the simple, you know, numbers that we talked about in regards to expected, expected value of any given shot, um, you know, show us we talked about the numbers in regards to, um, you know, shooting a three-point shot, but then you also look at the con- converse, the, 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 the easiest shot, the highest percentage shot in the game is, is anywhere from zero to three feet, which basically is in the restricted. And the league average is about 62.8% from that shot, which is an expected value of 1.256. So essentially anything in between is sub one. Three to 10 feet is about a 0.76 shot. Um, you know, 10 to 16 feet, 0.8. 16 feet out to the three-point line, 0.7. So if you just cut out the middleman and think, hey, we're going to try to get to the rim, we're going to shoot threes, well, how can we do that? we got to, we got to move bodies out of the way. So, you know, Mike D'Antoni really invented the spread pick and roll. And almost every team in the NBA now is going to have a version of it in their offense, right, rather than put a big down low and bring – not only another offensive player into the painted area near the goal, but also another defensive player, right? Well, let's just surround the guy with a bunch of shooters and force longer rotations. So now yep. we have the yep. mentality that we're trying to get to the rim. The thought process is attacking with an aggressive mindset is going to allow us to get to the rim, which is a higher percentage shot, right? It's going to allow us to draw the defense, Right, which is going to open up receivers, and if they're all around the three-point line, creates long closeouts. Right, if we are attacking uh, rotations uh, and, and getting close to the rim, we have a higher chance to get fouled. If we're drawing the defense in once again and we miss a shot, we have a higher chance for an offensive rebound. So everything that we want to have happen positively on any given possession, specifically as it pertains to the pick and roll, is taking place in the painted area and even more specifically, as close to the restricted as possible. So, you know, from there, surrounding a player, an outstanding playmaker like a James Harden with three additional shooters and a roll man that's long and athletic diving to the front of the rim like a Clint Capella, it becomes very hard to guard. And, you know, obviously our efficiencies, you know, in the pick and roll were were through the roof from an offensive standpoint. I mean, we ran – you know, 78.9 uh, pick and rolls uh, per game. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were highly successful. Now, James Harden's a pretty good player. Um, Steve Nash was a pretty good player. Do you think that this 
type of offense can be successful with, let's say, an average player? I mean, like for you, it would be average NBA yeah. player. For us, it would be, you know, an average college player or even slightly above average, but not with the skill set of a guy like James Harden who, you know, who might be one of the best one-on-one players ever to play. Yeah, let's look at it. Let's look at it this way. Okay, so no team is going to have James Harden, Ryan Anderson, Eric Gordon, right, Clint Capella, um, and James Harden. So uh, you're you're absolutely right. That's a, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, our team in the real in, in RGV this year ran the same system. We had the league's number one offensive rating by uh, by large margin. And I'll also say this. We we ran a lot of the same offensive concepts. I mean we ran the 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 Rockets offense, the Dantoni offense. We ran it. But um we didn't have great three point shooters. Uh and in fact if you take out the corner three, our three point shooting percentage above the break uh from an effective field goal standpoint was probably I think I think it was somewhere twentieth out of what twenty twenty two really? uh D League teams. So we we didn't have we had we had Kyle Wilcher who was a knockdown shooter, but we had a lot of slashers and playmakers. And the the thing is is even average shooters shooting open three point shots, right? You say whatever, even a blind squirrel is gonna gonna catch a nut every now and again, right? So <laughs> yep. you know, you can't just close out to disrespect the professional basketball player it doesn't matter what their percentages you know are saying or it doesn't matter what their strengths and weaknesses are just like you know even at the at the mid-major levels at the college levels at the low major levels at the d2 levels if you just close out and dis- disrespect the guy down at my local ymca there are a couple guys i'm telling you what they're going to make that shot every time <laughs> so with, you know what i mean right you're like oh no way this guy is not hitting it. you just don't even go out there and he just makes like three in a row and now you're like oh Man, can I get on your squad, right? No, 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 man. We got five already. Sorry. We got to wait for <laughs> well, they, they see you in the gym, and, and you know, I, you're an offensive juggernaut, but the defense, uh, I don't know. Maybe they see you in the <laughs> hey, And here I am now. We're talking about pick and roll defense. Who would have thought, right? Oh, you're the man. expert. You're the expert. Steve, Steve Donahue is sitting in his chair in his office somewhere going, wow, if I could have gotten this guy to play defense, <laughs> we would have won a little bit sooner. Um, but, you know, seriously though back you know kind of looking at it i think that it, i think it i think it works because of the spacing not necessarily even focused on the personnel right um and, and, and how me, often would you guys because like obviously we all know the rockets and we know harden has a ball in his hand pretty much the whole time um with yep. a team like yours that you said didn't have one guy that was you know that explosive or that good uh, at, at those skills, would you rotate who would be in the ball? Like, did it was the yeah. ball in different Great guys' question. hands to give, give guys different chances? Yeah. So here's and he, yeah here's the way I would look at it. First, I would like to I, I would clarify that we had some very talented players, um, and we were able to get guys to call ups to the NBA. But there's just nobody else that's James Harden, right? So. Those right, are, you know, those right. are just those are just. Yeah, I didn't mean to disrespect so, your players. I, those guys are great. They're just, you know, James Harden I, is one of a kind. Not that I exactly. Not that I expect my guys to be, you know, 
listening to analytical podcasts. I, I hope they are. <laughs> but, you know, just in the interest of respecting my guys, because I love them to death and they're outstanding players. But, um, no, we absolutely would. So, from a, from a coaching standpoint, right, it's all about putting our players in the best position to succeed, right? So, any typical team, you've probably got two to three guys that you would classify as playmakers, guys that you would want in the pick and roll. They, as a coaching staff or an organization, we trust them to make the right decision at the right time, whether it's score, uh, pass, you know, whatever the case may be. And um, from there, you've got to really figure out when it gets down to the end of the game, if, if we're going to, if we've got to, you know, play faster or play slower, if we've got to control, you know, who gets the shots or who's in the, in the playmaking situation or if things can kind of grow organically. And one thing that I love about our offense is that our offense is predicated on a lot of reads and an open space and we've got specific um, specific reasons for guys to be in different places, different reads off of that. But the the at the heart of it, it's there is an equal opportunity element to it. But guys knowing their roles and buying into the roles and how you work with them on the player development side then meshes with your shot selection priorities based on both personnel and just our organizational beliefs, right? So if one guy is not a playmaker, um, those guys hopefully through repetition, video, practice, aren't just sitting there saying, I want to try to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove to coach I'm a playmaker. Hopefully they're understanding when they're in a specific situation, they need to get off the ball or they need to play off the catch and get to the rim. If their rim drive gets impeded by another defender, just find the next guy and make the simple play and – you know, we emphasize a .5 mentality. It's shoot it, rip it, swing it. Shoot it, rip it, swing it, swing it. Right? So we get down to the fourth quarter. We get down to end of shot clock situation. We got to go spread, pick, and roll, which a lot of teams do. And we've got, you know, diff- two different offenses for end of shot clock. One is a spread, pick, and roll offense. All of our guys know that the ball goes to one of two or three guys. Now, if they're both in there at the same time, right, it's just almost like who's the next guy that can get the ball to get into the action. What does the point five have to do with anything? Well, that's that's knowing your role, right? So if we swing the ball, because you can't always control who's going to get the pick and roll. Like if you just walk the ball up the court and say we're going to play this spread pick and roll the entire game, how stagnant does the offense get, right? Extremely. So yeah. there are specific times in the game, you know, mainly you look in playoff games, fourth quarter and playoff games, it becomes a pick and roll or isolation heavy game, right, because it's all about trying to control the chess pieces in the right way. But throughout the, the, the duration of the game, right, our hope is that our main playmakers are going to be in the majority of the pick and rolls, that our main drivers are going to be, you know, doing what they do, that our big guys aren't going to be coming out of whatever their role is. And so from there, like, hopefully throughout the organic aspect of our offense, our two or three guys that are playmakers are already in the majority of our pick and roll actions, whether it's on the side or spread lifted action. Okay. Okay. Um, now I think we have to talk about this just because the timing that we're in, uh, guarding the golden state warriors. So now you're talking about a whole nother beast in your studies or, or, you know, obviously <laughs> this is being taped after game two. So who knows what's going to happen in the next couple games, but what do you do? What, what, what are your thoughts? Is there any way to slow them down statistically looking at what they are best and worst at? Is there any way 
to contain them. I don't know if you're ever going to stop them, but to contain them. Yeah, you know, I think anytime you're looking at that, you, you, first you got to hope that Zaza Pachulia plays 48 minutes and uh, <laughs> everybody everybody fouls out. But you no, know, on a serious standpoint, anytime you can have a, a defense in there, like we already talked about, that can that can switch things appropriately, and that's not you can't point switch. You got to communicate it. Um, you know, as just as Delic would say, you got to talk it, touch it, switch it. <laughs> I mean, you got to do all those types of things, right? You can't. You got to come together on your switches. You got to be able to try to keep guys in front. If if you do that, I think you give yourself the best chance. Because again, regardless of who it is, personnel wise, the game is in our favor if we can if we can make them shoot contested dribble jump shots. That's a lot easier said than done. But if we could switch theoretically everything, I would guess that gives us the best opportunity. Now, does that mean that's what's going to happen? I mean, most definitely not. Like if you look on the converse side, the Golden State Warriors are a great switching team, an elite switching team. And not only that, but they have the ability to switch in pick-and-roll situations uh, that are 1-5 even. And as a Tristan Thompson rolls down, they bump whoever that, that mismatched guard is out to the weak side, and the biggest guy on the weak side comes over to take the roll man to prevent any sort of mismatch after the switch. And by the time the, the offense figures out what's happened, the shot clock's below five seconds. And, you know, if you're able to execute those types of things, the triple switching, scram the small concept, um, late clock switching, if you can if you can execute those, then you give yourself a chance. Is there anything that you, that you guys saw or even personally that, that you've seen in your studies of the NBA of, like, a, one way to guard – them over another way, meaning like all right, Kevin Durant, uh, you know, does he is he better coming off a screen right or posting up on one side so force him to the other side or Curry as good as he is if he takes five dribbles he's less effective or anything that you know NBA wise statistically we're not necessarily thinking of as casual fans or or, or anything like that. You know. um I'm, I haven't done any sort of advanced scouting specifically on the Golden State Warriors, so I don't want to give you inaccurate information, but I can tell you the data is out there. And, you know, as it pertains to us, the Houston Rockets, we are going to look at all of that stuff, you know, going into a, going into a given game. Um, and we look at a lot of that stuff. Uh, we have access to more numbers even at the D-League level than a lot of NBA teams do. But, when you're formulating a, a scouting report and trying to figure out, you know, how you can be most successful against these elite players, those are the types of things you have to look for, right? It's not just, hey, force Kevin Durant shoot a dribble jump shot per se, but it's, hey, his effective field goal percentage, if he shoots it, you know, on the right side of the floor, uh, you know, after a dribble behind the three-point line going to his right hand is incredibly low. Like, I mean, if you can force that shot, that's an ideal situation. If he's in a post-up situation, you look at it, regardless of the numbers, he's worse when he spins to the baseline, which I believe I saw some data on that. You know, if he's forced in the post to shoot a turnaround jump shot to the baseline, regardless of which shoulder it's over, right, it's a less effective shot for him. Well, now we know how we're going to defend him, you know, in that mid-post area when he catches the ball. But 
you know, all bets are off when you watch him at the end of the shot clock. And I, I think I saw three or four possessions. I thought they were dead in the water. And this guy's just hitting dribble pull-up three-point shots with people <laughs> raped all over him. And how does how does the communication – so the staff obviously is going to know everything, all the data, the, the you know, the analytics guys to the coaches. Um, how much are you giving the players? So you're talking about the it's, most elite yeah. players in the world. No, but how how much are you giving them, and are there certain guys that take it better than others that, that you know of or, you know – yeah, kind of talk about that the, a little bit. The 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 fewer numbers the players see, the better in general. Um, and you know, without without you know talking too much about anything that's proprietary, I can tell you that that my personal philosophy um, is not to show the players a single number pertaining to the game. So. What we look at in our, you know, from a scouting perspective and a coaching staff is far different than what the players are going to see. Because I don't want a player to interpret the numbers how he sees them. He might not see the numbers the same way I see them, right? He might see okay. a guy yeah. and I, and, and I, I say, Hey, this guy's a hot closeout. We got to chase him off the three point line, right? And then if I show him in his scouting report and there's, a season box score, he might say, man, this dude's only shooting 32% from three. And he might not understand that the the numbers I have look back the last three or four years, and he might be on a down year, but, you know, if you look at him over the long run, he's a 40% three-point shooter. You know, we right. don't want them to right. try to interpret uh, anything. I just want so you're, my players yeah, he, to, to trust he, that I say, we got to chase this guy off the line. Okay, so you're more giving them game plans and emphases rather than this is why. Like, like, look, I, I've studied it. This is that's why we're doing it. So trust me on it. And this is the best way that you're going to have the best results. That that because I've studied it. Like, you don't need to know all the details, but this is the best way to guard somebody. Exactly. I and, and you look at it from a standpoint of oh, this guy's you know, uh, a 20-point-per-game score. But, what I mean, what if he's taking him 20 shots to get to 20 points per game, right? That doesn't mean, hey, we got to go abandon what we do. we got to shut this guy down. This guy, this is the key to what we do is shutting this individual down because if he's going to take 20 shots to get to 20 points, my, by all means, please do it, right? Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. And, and when we look at it, right, just to kind of give you an idea, right, it's, more, it's, it's not so much um, – you know, from it, we'll watch the video, we'll do all that type of stuff, but it's more like watch for a guy to do this, take advantage of this, right? So it's very simple, right? What's a guy do well, right? Watch for him to, you know, run in transition, shoot open threes, rebound, block shots, straight line drive, all right? Well, you know, take advantage of, you know, lack of strength, right? Uh, his defensive rebounding, tendency to leak out, uh, score first mentality, right? So now it's more simple direct, I guess, um, you know, ideas on what you can do. And then, you know, from a situational tendency standpoint, you can look at, you know, who's good in the post, who's good on this, who's good at that. And, like, for us, too, you know, I mean, I'm looking at it from how, how can we get better and more efficient for our players and easier to interpret. 
and, and I'm leaning towards even a color coded aspect to to things. So in a perfect world, right? Any anything that's the guy does well, let's put it in like green, right? Like or have like a green strip behind the text and what he, you know things that he doesn't do well, let's put it in red. You know what I mean? A little red strip behind the text and and still keep it simple for things yeah. that we can take advantage of, but but make it more visual for the player. If that makes sense. Yeah. Because these yeah, guys got these guys have to be instinctive. Yeah. It's got to register and yeah. it's got to be instinctive. Um, yep. You don't want to be out there thinking so much, right? Hopefully we we practice our base coverages enough. We understand our principles. You know, we're we're going to be able to do what we do. But the personnel aspect of the game is still incredibly important. And you know, we don't want to bombard these guys' minds with too much data. And I think numbers can do that. Yep. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Well. Uh, this went fast. Uh, every time I talk to somebody in the NBA, I realize that they are miles ahead of, um, at least at our level, the, the low, you know, low mid-major programs of, of what we have access to and what we can we can do. So uh, um, the pick and roll stuff is great. If, if anybody out there wants to talk to Cody, I don't know if uh, uh, what's your uh, Twitter name these days? Yeah. Cody Topper, is that still? It's um, top thirty three. You, you can. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, T O P P three three. Um, you know, I've got a website, CodyTopper.com. And anybody wants to talk about this stuff, they can reach out to me. If your guard pick and rolls on the side, you should ice it. Be one to three steps below the level of the screen. Same concept is in the middle. And you're good to go. <laughs> get a go. Get a stop now. Yeah, right. And go get a rebound. <laughs> go get a stop. And go and get, get a, a rebound. rebound. Get a stop and a rebound. <laughs> All right, well, Cody, I really appreciate you taking the time here. Uh, very informative. Always uh, good to talk hoops with you. And uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to you again soon or see you again soon. But, but once again, thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. A lot of fun. Um, you know, just specifically about, you know, this podcast in general, what you're doing. I think it's great. I think it's a, a very important part of the game and finding that bridge right between the basketball side of it, the eye test, the breaking things down and understanding from from concepts and the numbers and finding that happy happy balance right there, I think is is very key to winning games these days. Yeah, that's what it's all about. So it's, it's about winning games and the best uh, the best way to do that or or finding ways to do that. So this is one avenue. What keeps the and, lights uh, on? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, Cody, good talking to you and. Uh, See you soon. All right. Thanks.